Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Samwise Yaboinski podcast. My name is Chris, and I'm here with Sam. Hello, Sam. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good. really excited for today. Uh, We'll talk about our guest in just a little bit, but I wanted to remind everybody of our name, the Samwise Yaboinski podcast. Um, Samwise is sort of my name for our very own Sam Foster in honor of Samwise Gamgee. Gamgee's Gamgee. It's Gamgee. It's Samwise Gamgee, I believe. Samwise Gamgee who was in the Lord of the Rings in so many ways, so crucial, so pivotal, just like our very own Sam is all over the life of the church, (laughs) doing such an incredible job, especially now adding to his hyphenate job description, uh, podcast host and truth bomb dropper. And because uh, of my hairy feet. My hairy feet is a big part of it. And yeah. the possessor of truly, <laughs> truly hairy feet. And then Yaboinski is my family name in the original Polish. Somebody told me that's what our um, name was pronounced way back when, back in the old country. And I only just learned that it means apple tree, um, really? which has always been my favorite fruit. Oh. And then I only just found out just recently that there's a good reason for it. So that's very exciting. But... This is our podcast with the First Church in Belmont, and we bring on incredible people in our community, and we get to know them, hear a little bit of their backstory, and today is another fascinating story. Nate Sellers, who is our children's religious education uh, director and has been so crucial to our digital ministry and our response to the pandemic has created so many of the videos that we've shared, is just a visionary storyteller and just so creative and really a joy to work with. Uh, He's here and we get to hear a little bit of his fascinating story, a lot of which I didn't know. Did you know all of the stories now? No, I didn't know all of it, no. He's a fascinating guy. He's got to live through a lot of things. He has a lot to say. So it's a real treat. So we'll, uh, we'll dive right into it. So here is Nate. All right. Well, welcome, Nate. We're so grateful to have you on. Welcome. Now we can't even count how many guests. Thank you, guys. We're so deeply into this process (laughs) right now. But it has been one of the great joys, really, of especially these last two years. Like, it was always fun to work with you. And early on, it was fun because of all of your stories. And I had always been the story motor of religious institutions in which and so being able to partner with you and all of your creativity (laughs) and working so closely was was really fun but it it was really i mean words are hard to come by to say how grateful i am for the depth and the just 
ocean of work you poured into our community during the first phase of the pandemic. Now also, oh, thanks, but Chris. really, yeah. really above and beyond. I was just looking back at the videos because um, we issued a couple reruns at the beginning of the church year as we were getting ready for this new phase. And I just saw mm -hmm. that first week it was Ian and I with like two days just throwing together some videos and literally the very next week, the very <laughs> next week with no notice, yeah. You had achieved a kind of identity almost for the whole <laughs> pandemic video digital ministry. It was really mm. wild. And so many times when I talk to colleagues who are just pulling their hair out and really struggling to meet this moment, and they'd ask me about what we've been doing, I'm like, well, I kind of got this guy. <laughs> just happens to yeah. be a digital filmmaker with all of this experience and creativity <laughs> who understands. So it really, it's an incredible gift. Everything you wow. you have done even before this, but especially in the pandemic, it's really been totally nuts. So I'm just really, really, really. Well, grateful. thanks Chris. That's, that's so nice of you to say. Um, yeah. It's, as you know, I, I've told you many times, it's such a joy to work with you because it's it's a team effort and with ian and you it's just so easy to put these videos together even though they're time consuming it's just um it's such a joy to meet up you know in the middle of the week and just kind of throw ideas out and see what sticks and then collect all those ideas and then put something together so it's uh it's been my pleasure honestly yeah well and so we're we'll get to sort of this next phase and some of the fun stuff that we have coming up but wanted to, you know, hear a little bit of the backstory too. Part of what's been really fun in these uh, podcasts is getting to know folks and hearing a little bit of how mm -hmm. they landed. So, so how did you find um, Unitarian Universalism way back when? Um, well, I went to a evangelical Christian college and I grew up um, a born again Christian, you could say. And I was um, in a uh, theology class with uh, um, a really bright professor, pr Professor Flett, and he started talking to us about Karl Barth and then about Paul Tillich and Howard Thurman. And it was inevitable that <laughs> universalism would pop up mm. um, with those theologians. And so slowly I started studying their work and I became very interested and it was sort of taboo. And it was, it was covered in a real broad way, not like it's an option, but this is kind of the, the direction that these um, these intellectuals, these academics kind of uh, lean towards or uh, grew towards. And so I started learning about universalism, and then I started studying biblical hermeneutics and realized that the Pauline letters are um, kind of binatarian. They're not Trinitarian. And oh, really? uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very focused on um, not really this idea of separating God and uh, Father and Spirit. That's just one thing. God is Spirit. Mm. And so mm. once I understood that, I was like, oh, there's variation. Mm. And then I started realizing that there is Unitarianism all the way back to like 200 AD. Mm. Yeah. And, um, and you can even say further, but organized um, all right. the way back then. And so that got me thinking like, wow, this this is interesting that there's a whole sect or communities that believed in Unitarianism and Universalism. There's individuals that believe in Universalism. And so that got me to kind of question a lot of stuff that I grew up believing. And um, then when I went to seminary, it was about a time that I started um, 
becoming a humanist. And I actually went to seminary with a lot of uh, UUs. And uh, it was a UCC seminary in Lancaster. Um, but <clears throat> I just became interested in uh, questioning. Excuse me, I just have to clear my throat. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, just asking them questions about uh, their beliefs. And soon they basically pointed me to a UU church that needed uh, someone to basically recreate their uh, CR CRE curriculum. <laughs> so that's how I basically got into a church is just started striking conversations with some UUs at the seminary I was attending. Then I found myself rewriting a bunch of curriculum for their RE program. Uh, no, and no, uh, yeah. And then I just kind of got looped in and, uh, it, it, it was it was it was the right time because myself I was becoming a humanist. Um, I mm. was studying world religions. Um, I my master's is in a global religious phenomena, wow. and uh, and I worked as a youth minister for four years before I was in seminary. So it just kind of really worked out finding myself at this place and um, working with these kids and with these uh, the youth team and. Uh, yeah, so it just started in undergrad, and it just kind of slowly formed until I was literally in a church, uh, working on RE curriculum, and uh, yeah. So and when you, when you say it. becoming a humanist, I mean at the yeah. time you were raised mm -hmm. a theist, right? Yes, yes. And so uh, was that? So. I mean, when do you, when you went in, what kind of where did you think you were going to be ending up? Did you think? Did you have yeah. any idea where you thought you were landing? Yeah. So, um, uh, and so when you say, uh, went in, are, are you talking about seminary? seminary? Yeah, yeah, seminary. yeah, yeah. Um, so I, um, I, w I would say that I was a humanist at that point. I was studying the way of, uh, uh, wanting to be an academic and, oh, yeah. um, to study, um, theology and philosophy in a way that we can start understanding global religious phenomena. Mm -hmm. yeah, and yeah. looking at it from uh, uh, an academic and uh, perspective, mm. um, because a lot of stuff written about it uh, uh, is sort of biased and uh, feeds to spiritualism, which is great. But for me, being a humanist and experiencing a lot of uh, like people speaking in tongues and people being slain by the spirit mm. and literally seeing someone's eye grow in Thailand, like that's what my mind perceived when they were healing this person when I was in Thailand at it point i had to make sense of that so when i was at seminary it was like how do i make sense of all of these magical things these surreal things that i've uh that i've seen over the years now being a humanist and not really believing um in this uh uh, uh um you could say uh uh the spiritual uh um uh, i'm trying to think of the right word uh uh I guess you could just say the ideology of the Christian church, yeah. um, this idea yeah. that we have souls and a spirit and there's this afterlife. Yeah. It was like, yeah. how do I make sense of that? And so that's what seminary was, was trying to pursue uh, um, religion in an academic um, way. So I don't want to lose the story you just kind of glazed over about seeing yeah. somebody's eye grow in Thailand. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I know that story. So, so we were we were staying at this brothel. Uh, yeah, <laughs> good way to start. No, but uh, we I ended up in Thailand uh, teaching English for three months. But of course, when you're an evangelical, you're not just teaching English; you are converting. Right. And so we were staying at this cafe above this cafe in these two rooms, me and eight other people. And um, basically, when we got there, um, 
they were like, we can't have you more than a few days. And we said, where are we going to stay? And they said, well, there's a bar across the street. They have some beds. And we ended up at this bar and teaching at a school like three blocks from this bar in Patia. And uh, we realized it was a brothel as well. So we just ended up babysitting um, these prostitutes' um, babies at night when the, mm-hmm. they were working and teaching during the day uh, English at this school right on the ocean. And mm-hmm. um, it was a really interesting experience. But what happened was there was a homeless man that uh, uh, that couldn't see. His eye was, you could say, like half in a, of an eyeball. It wasn't fully wow. formed. And uh, we were with this uh, guide uh, and translator who basically prayed over him. And then he basically did what Jesus did with spitting and dirt and then rubbing it in his eye kind of situation. Yeah. And when you have this strong faith, it makes sense. We didn't think this was strange, you know, when I was 17, 18, when I was seeing this. And he smeared it in his eye and he started rubbing around this socket. And I literally, I swear I saw the, the eye form. Wow. wow. And so, mm-hmm. again, is it is it my faith and my religious beliefs of 18 years leaning into mm-hmm. uh, that sight um, and what I experienced? Or did I actually see something? And mm-hmm. so I witnessed a lot of this because I, I uh, um, went on a lot of missions trips with Grace Chapel, um, yeah. you know, Lexington right down the road. And I witnessed, I can't tell you how, how many things that were similar. <clears throat> excuse me and uh so yeah i did witness that or i uh, experienced something that made me think that i saw a man's eye grow so you, you but, saw you saw yeah. people being healed in other places as well this was something that yes you, yes i saw yeah. people being healed and again but again th- this this was normal for me yeah um and we used to go into dorchester to the pentecostal churches and witness mm. this stuff all the time um, yeah. But when you realize that you don't believe in the the, um, the Christian ideology that uh, uh, correlates with these healings, you're put in a position of what you know. How does this make sense? And yeah, and yeah. that's why seminary, and that's you know all of that. So, and was that hard for you to sort of reconcile when you were first sort of having that those beliefs shift and change, or were you sort of welcoming the the transition? Um, I, 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 it, it was almost like losing a parent. I don't know what it is to lose a parent. And uh, I, I, I'm sorry if I uh, correlate it to someone losing a parent and, uh, and if that offends someone, but for me, it was, uh, uh, there was a lot of stress and, mm. uh, uh, digestive like issues, like everything, like it took a toll on my body oh, really? and, um, I had wow. to identify God as something else. And it was the first time I went to therapy. Wow. We talked about God is like Harvey, you know, from the movie Harvey, the big, you know, rabbit with uh, uh, Jimmy, (laughs) uh, what's it, Jimmy Stewart. Stewart, And uh, and so I kind of had to separate myself um, from this idea of God that I grew up with to be able to get over it. It was a huge shift. Yeah. And um, it, it, it started because I, you know, we had my daughter Auden, and one thing I wanted to do was just be truthful with her. And mm. I couldn't honestly say that God existed. I couldn't say that God loved her. Like the things I was told when I was younger, you know, no, mm. um, God is this, God loves you. God takes care of these people. I couldn't say that to my daughter because I couldn't know for sure, which allowed me to, uh, you know, uh, lean into my biblical hermeneutics in a different way mm. uh, for a different purpose. And I slowly came out of that 
you know, believing that, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if God exists. And um, so, yeah, would you, it, was, it was very hard. Would you, would yeah. you, I mean, would you describe that as a kind of crisis in your life? It sounds like it kind of to me. Yes. But, yeah, no, yeah. It, it, it was. And the sad thing was my wife was going through it silently. Oh. And so I was like seeking help and yeah. being vocal about it with her. And I didn't know, but my wife was same same experience because we met at college. Oh, wow. She was, we both started off with in youth ministry. We both have minors in biblical studies, you know, wow. um, mm. all of that stuff. And I didn't know. She was just so quiet and almost very stoic about it. And it's not until, you know, um, recently that she's really, you know, beginning to cope with it too. And yeah, it it, it, it is a crisis. It really is. Mm. Especially mm. when your uh, when your own parents think that you're you know destined for hell, um, mm. and yes. you've been excommunicated from uh, communities that were your life, you wow. know they were you know. So anchor. you were excommunicated from grace. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 And uh, I was excommunicated before then because I called out a uh, um, and what they call elders, um, because uh, I he said things about women that were sexist and I called him sexist, uh, at age 17. Mm. And, uh, they asked me to leave or to maybe join one of the sister churches. So I went to grace community instead. Mm. And, um, which is a sister church in Chelmsford. And, uh, I attended there and that's where I was a youth leader and then all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I was asked to leave grace even before then, but, um, yeah, uh, my mentor, uh, a really good great guy uh mike adams he yeah he basically cut off communication with me and wow. i was basically uh people called me a stray and uh, mm. that's how i was referred to wow. by that community was a, a stray so you were exiled to chelmsford <laughs> yeah and then, <laughs> then i wanted to be exiled from <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, and was 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 all this kind of gradual or did it happen like was this while you were in seminary that you were, yeah, that you were kind of questioning so, yeah yeah so uh it was it was first at uh eastern university in undergrad um, right outside philadelphia that i started really questioning and mm. that's when you know again i heard about unitarianism and i heard about universalism and i realized yeah. that christianity Christianity is a web, you know what I mean? It's not this yeah. target. It's not the answer. It spreads out. Mm. And the diversity um, wowed me at first. I was amazed by it. And that's what led me to start questioning more. Yeah. And um, and then through that, you know, I became, you know, a humanist because I think morality and ethics are so important. Mm. Yeah. It's something that I, I think is so important for kids to know and just people to practice and and so I never lost sight of that. So being a humanist made the most sense, but it was gradual in the way of going from undergrad to seminary, I would say like four years. Mm. It was a four year process of uh, stress and mm. all that, you know? And then, so you land in Unitarian Universalism yeah. as a religious educator. Yes. As a, as a, um, I guess more of, a, a, an advisor, in yeah. the way of uh, advising their their youth team and their RE uh, staff um, and kind of w- workshopping a lot of the ideas they already had. But like up until this point, I worked you know, in two youth groups. I was working in like with cogn- cognitive behavioral analysis. And yeah. I just started applying the things I learned from the evangelical uh, youth group and uh, practices. But 
Mm. Uh, but also a lot of stuff that I learned from, um, like I said, uh, cognitive behavioral analysis and things. And mm. I just started shaping a program that I would want to uh, use one day. Yeah, like yeah. if I was in this position and I had a program, this is what I would want the kids to really focus on. This is what happens developmentally with the kids at this age. This yeah. is what correlates with it. And uh, yeah, so I found myself as this advisor um and uh did that then, for a summer yeah and then when was the first time you were brought on to a staff as an re person uh framingham oh so, well fun yeah, fun yeah. fact listeners this is <laughs> the church i grew up in that yeah. both nate and i flowed through at different times yep. so when was that yeah uh 2015 i think because wow. uh i graduated seminary in 2014 uh, we moved up north so my wife could start looking for jobs in academia. And um, I worked as a, a substitute and uh, worked in uh, like neurodiverse classrooms. And yeah, yeah. I soon started applying to a bunch of UU churches because I had this portfolio of, of, yeah. of lessons, right? right? <laughs> and in seminary, I also had this class called Wonder, Wisdom, and Education. And you basically oh. got to create your own program. Oh, that's you great. know, so I had all of this material. So I was just sending it around to like Concord and Framingham. And then, yeah, Framingham said, hey, we like you. So <laughs> that's fantastic. I, uh, yeah, started and, and, there. And sorry to jump around, but then have, have you always had storytelling sort of woven through all of this? Or when did that start? Uh, that started, uh, I started with the story, The King Who Owned Too Many Things, which I think a, a lot mm -hmm. of people know. I've told it a few times. Uh that started the day before autumn was born um, wow. and i wrote that for her in a way oh. of what, what kind of story would i want my kids to hear you know yeah. um, mm. and so i wrote that and like i was a lyricist for a while i was a musician for a while so this idea of rhyming and uh kind of finding uh, uh, uh humor and but also reflecting on uh just the human condition and existence was like yeah. I don't want to say it came naturally, but it was something that I was always pondering. So when I was like, oh, I want to form a, a, a child story, it kind yeah. of just rolled out. And that was the first cool. one. And I would say in seminary, I started writing them a bit more because uh, I started writing these programs, like I said, for a class like Wonder, Wisdom, and Education. And so I was like, oh, this is a thing. I can write a story. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or, and uh, that's how it kind of formed. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I didn't really write um, like a uh, poem so much. Yeah. Well, I guess if lyrics are poems, but I didn't really write for kids or for myself until I would say seminary. Mm. Yeah. 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 It's fun how parenting you. So Lauren and I, when I was a minister of religious education many years ago, Lauren and I would just make up stories for the kids when they were little <laughs> yeah. and and you know little kids they're just like tell me another one so we <laughs> yeah, were just yeah. it was like boot camp it was like something from a rocky sequel yeah. where we were just churning out story after story after story after story yeah. many many times yeah. a night yeah. and then by the time we were just creating them for church uh they just came sort of naturally um, but it was because we were parents all of a sudden. And so we just needed to start telling stories and we were in the car and they would just be like, tell me another one, tell me another one. It's fun. <laughs> and I appreciate the rhyming that you do. It's a fun, it's a fun twist and a nice kind of balance. Cause I, so I think I did one kind of epic rhyming. I think it was like a Christmas pageant or something, but 
otherwise um i never do so it's you know i need i need to pass this along to my to my undergrads who are who are taking this creative writing class i should pass on to them if you want to learn how to write a story have kids that's right there we go it's a sure way to fast track your tenure at harvard um cool well ah that's fascinating so then and then we get you and and then here you are here you are building this amazing program so so i wonder if just say a little bit about sort of the program that you started building and where you, where we are now uh-huh. and what do you think comes next? Um, you know, we've been yeah. in such a different phase of religious education at the church, especially in the pandemic. And there's so much potential. I'm just over yeah. and over again, so aware of how much uh, creativity and how many new things we could all be building together. So, so if you could just say a little bit about kind of where we are now and what might be coming yeah. next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, right now is a we're in an interesting position where we're you know we we built a website uh, fcbcre.com. Check it out. Check it out. Check it out. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) and we're trying to orchestrate something that serves both parents and kids. So we have lessons, and we have programming like building bridges, and um, but at the same time we have resources like recommendations for parents and uh, um, other websites people can check out. So we're trying to keep uh, this thing active online. And that's that's quite a challenge because some things are in person now, some things are online, uh, kids are burnt out. And so we're, we're, we're trying to offer something that allows people just, to, you know, if they want to be involved, not to fully commit, but just even just check out the website, find what works for them. And so that's kind of where we are right now. And that's not exactly where we want to be, let's say, two years from now, especially if we're back in person or a year from now. So what we want to do is kind of keep that website as a as a, a, a place of resources, of lessons, and a place of recommendations like books and films for families and parents. But uh, we kind of want to move forward and kind of forming workshops for the kids, to be honest, mm-hmm. and kind of making it so kids kind of dial into what they want to learn about. So instead of just saying, you know, uh, grades one through three, they're studying this, grades four through six are studying this, and we're following these pillars mm. of, uh, uh, of curriculum, we kind of want to create workshops and where the kids find interest, that's what they ta- tap into. So maybe mm. offer two workshops in the fall, two workshops in the spring. And uh, <laughs> I know as adults, when we think of workshops, we're thinking of something very specific. But as kids, it's going to be <laughs> it's going to be a lot different for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's tailoring to their interests, but also um, uh, um, supplying the uh, um, the information and the uh, uh, um, I guess lessons and things that we want the kids to learn already. You know, whether it be about social justice or world religions or UU history, like we would implement that stuff into the workshops. But I see it kind of taking a different form because when I joined we had classrooms and it was like these two grades learn this at this time of year, these two grades learn that or this subject at this time of year. And it, it worked, um, you know, all right, but you could see that the kids weren't really dialed in mm-hmm. and it what it wasn't their classroom in a way. It was kind of like, here's this, this information, we're passing it on to you, which can be a beautiful thing. But at the same time it, for kids, it's just like, you're just tossing, random facts at me why do i care about this right. and so when we joined we started 
uh, asking kids what they wanted to hear about within these subjects. So we started tailoring the lessons to more of stuff that interests them, which we worked out for a while. But then, you know, not a lot of people were signing up to teach and a lot of people were getting burnt out. And so I think after this pandemic, the idea of doing a workshop and having a person or two who specialize in the area kind of teach these kids, you know, makes more sense than, um, you know, just kind of beating this dead horse of uh, Sunday school. You know, (laughs) of course, this idea of death of Sunday school is something that comes up every decade or or two, right? Right. And for us, it's just like, we want to kind of get out of that loop and be like, yeah, it's Sunday school, but it's not. So one of the other questions that we've been asking everybody is um, around the principles and and sources. So if you have a, if you have a favorite principle, it's like a fun little education moment. So if you have a favorite principle, what is that and 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 why? Yeah. Um, to be honest, I do. I, I, I have, I think, two favorite principles. And okay. Uh, my favorite is the fourth, which is a uh, free and responsible search for truth and meaning. Mm, and I nice. think that's partly due because of my story of not really yeah. having freedom to search yeah. and just being told yeah. um, uh, what existence is, what uh, God is. Uh, um, and so I think it's so, res- uh, it's so important for kids to understand that their thoughts aren't bad that their thoughts aren't, uh, 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 um, what's the word, uh, 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 small. And mm. uh, as a kid, I thought that if I uh, uh, would uh, uh, define God as something other than my parents would, it was bad. Mm. And that's my ideas were just small in thought, and they don't compare to what an adult are. And like, and I think having something like the fourth principle allows kids to kind of be like, wow, it's a journey. Yeah, I'm not yeah. supposed to have the answers right now. And my thoughts are, uh, uh, can be appreciated, you know? And mm. um, I think that's why it's really important to me. And uh, I, I, I think especially having an 11-year-old right now who's really <laughs> thinking about, you know, the human condition and what it mm. means to exist and stuff, it's, yeah. It's it's so freeing to be able as a parent to be like, yeah, that makes sense. Or, oh, I see your perspective. Or right. did you th- consider this? And kind of having a dialogue because it's her journey. It's not, again, me telling her what truth is. Yeah. yeah. And because uh, where I find meaning is going to be most likely somewhere different, you know, off the map compared to like where Auden, my daughter, finds meaning. And I think that's so important to instill that and teach that. Um yeah. And, and of course, and, yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. What were you going to say? No, I was just going to say, especially now, you know, we, yeah, this moment that we're all living in is like so many absolutes shared and sort of trumpeted in the public square. So being able to yeah. lift up, you know, it's going to keep changing. You know, the search for meaning is kind of ongoing. And yeah, yeah. You know, like, especially exactly. for kids being able to say, you know, what you know and what you figure out matters. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I, I think something important, it, it kind of lines up with the idea that psychologically we're all the ages we've ever been. Yeah. And understanding that the search for truth uh, is uh, uh, is a journey and uh, and you, you don't have to define something as uh, uh, a, this moment in time. Like, like for us, as uh, or when I was evangelical, it was like when I was baptized, 
that was truth. And, you know, um, when I did this at this age, that's, uh, we, we would always kind of put these pins in what we've done and define them as like, oh, that's when uh, um, I earn more brownie points as a Christian, continue, continue. And mm. it was, it's not so much a journey. It was just kind of um, acquiring these accolades at different points in our life and then looking at uh, ourselves as uh, being more wise due to our age and stuff. And mm. I think it's really important to remember that psychologically, we're all the ages we've ever been. And, uh, you know, that's why we have those big, large feelings is because we're tapping into three-year-old, you know, yeah, absolutely. Sam and Chris and Nate and stuff like that. And there's truth in that, not just in what we achieve at a certain age and right. under, you know, and, uh, anyways, so. No, that's great. There's a tangent, but yes. And, um, how about the, you said there was a source too that you liked. Yes. Uh, the idea that humanist teachings, uh, mm. which counsel us to heed the guidance of reason and the result of science and warn against, you know, idolatries of the mind and spirit. Um, nice. Yes. I love how yeah. these are phrased. Idolatries. Idolatries of, of idolatries. the mind and spirit. Idolatries. What, is, yes. what does that mean, I, actually? I reading... Idolatries of the mind. I hadn't, I hadn't looked at that phrasing closely before now. And warn us against <laughs> idolatries of the mind and spirit. Idolatries of the spirit, I get. That's like golden calves and stuff, right? But, but what, is, what, is, yes. what, is, what is idolatries of the mind? What, what does that mean to you? That's a really good question. I would have to think about it more, but for, for me, mind and spirit are one. Because like, yeah. the idea of, uh, of spirit doesn't make much sense to me, especially as a humanist. Sure. So I think it's funny that spirit is uh, um, part of it. Um, for me, it's mind and spirit are the same thing. There's this uh, line uh, of a lyric that says, to use your mind is to use your soul. And, yeah. Um, yeah. and I've always really admired that. So I think the idolatries of the spirit are um, one and the same, to be honest. So, mm-hmm. um, so. I don't know if I'm challenging the wording of, <laughs> of the source, but um, maybe the philosophical uh, deconstruction of it, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then what um, would be the idolatry of the mind? Uh, well, I'm, I'm just wondering if, you know, that, that source is asking us to be skeptical, but right. skeptical of creations of the mind as well as creations of the spirit as those two, two things were more traditionally understood so so not just yeah. not just not just sort of blindly believe, believing in certain fixed spiritual ideas but but also blindly believing in certain intellectual ideas that for right. example you know i think of i think of certain very dogmatic um atheists who 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 oh. take quite quite reductionist views of human nature you know we're just cells and atoms and oh, so yeah, forth yeah yeah yeah, yeah and there yeah, are yeah, there are lots yeah. of gradations there are lots of obviously there are lots of variations and gradations of of those kinds of reductive ideas but but i i find that the most extreme versions of them of those very reductive yeah. views of what we are as human beings i think that, that becomes a kind of idolatry of the mind in my view mm. because it kind it becomes a way of sort of you know arguing away any kind of human freedom or human responsibility or morality and it becomes a you know yeah I, well, I think... you, you, you yeah you even see it with anti-theists compared to you know people that are non-theists right, right this right, idea of right. anti, being anti of something is idolatry of the mind yeah yeah I, exactly I can see it exactly. like that and uh but like uh um yeah, never mind. I was going to quote 
Camu, and then I realized how pretentious that sounded. No, so, no, do it. Do it. No, 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 no. Drop no, a little Camu. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's no. He it's it's the stance of Camu is is the opposite of this in the way of kind of the, the teaching of being skeptical of everything, or mm. that you need to find meaning. You know, not meaning is given to you. This idea that because I think idolatry of the mind is uh, as I guess could be understood as knowing or having certainty of something, right? Yeah. And being convinced yeah, to exactly. a, a, play, a place of blind faith. And for Camus, it's it's kind of the opposite. It's just mm-hmm. like, no, meaning is something that one must find. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's not something just given. And it's not mm-hmm. something you can just kind of possess. Um, and, and anyways, I, uh, I, I'm going to backpedal a little bit. Um, <laughs> no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. So before you go, we have yeah. a little bit of a mailbag segment that we usually do after Ooh. the guest is left. But my wife snuck in um, our first mailbag question, which was a follow-up from a theology class that Sam was a part of, but we thought it would be fun to hear from you on this too, Nate. Um, yeah, and apparently in this theology class, Sam was talking about the sources of consolation in Unitarian Universalism. Mm -hmm. And she was asking, where are the sources of consolation in Unitarian Universalism? Partially because she thought that until we're clear about that, the journey towards sort of healing some of the racial divides that we've had, healing some of our history um, will be complicated. So it's it's a theological task for us to really articulate and know where the sources of consolation are. So I wanted to share that very first question of the mailbag. And if any of you listening have any questions, you can email me minister at uubelmont.org or my long last name email that many of you had, uh, and we'll answer them here on the pod. Um, So yeah, but what do you guys think? Where's the consolation in Unitarian Universalism? Well, I got a, I got a, a, I got a few yeah, thoughts about go this. So I go first. <laughs> so um, I, I'm interested where where Lauren goes with this. I mean, when I remember, I remember talking about that in in Lauren's uh, seminar, and my, I guess my suggestion at the time was that uh, since Unitarian Universalism for many of us now lacks an afterlife, by no means for all of us. Mm. Um, you know, the search for consolation for our mortality and for our pain is something profound in 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 religion. And so, where do we find it within Unitarian Universalism? And and some people do find it in the the idea of an afterlife. But um, I think there's also consolation to be found, for example, in um, you know our sense of loneliness, of unmeaning in our society, in our very individualized and atomized society. Uh, there's 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 a consolation to be found in in the discovery or rediscovery that um, leading kind of a, a, a spiritual life in in community with 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 others um, can assist you to bring about lasting change and bettering the world and bettering yourself. Um, that it's not all all is not lost. In other words, you know. Sometimes you know when you're when you're in a bad place, sort of emotionally and spiritually, you think all is lost in some sense mm. or other, and and but then you rediscover your community, in this case, our UU community, and you find that spiritual striving together 
can change the world. And that's for me, that's that's consoling. The mm. better things are possible, you know. Yeah. I on sort of alongside that, I remember at the very beginning of the pandemic, something just a couple of weeks before we shut down, um, Rebecca Henke died. So mm. these are folks who have been at the church a really long time and and just as always a couple, always a unit. I met them as part of the lay pastoral care team and just lovely, incredible people. And, you know, James has talked a lot publicly, her widow, just about how hard it was that he was grieving her and didn't have the embrace of community. Mm-hmm. You know, like he couldn't come the Sunday after and just be swarmed with people, you know, like have people reaching out to him. I mean, obviously we were reaching out, people were sending cards, we were bringing food, but just that, that kind of enveloping community um, made all the difference. And to not have that um, was was really hard. So I think that to me is part of where we have consolation is in that connectedness Yes, is, is in that, you know, network that we create. Yeah, and and partly, I mean, partly because, you know, when when we are bereaved, we find that community and it's consoling. But also, many of us in in UU world are bereaved of our former faiths, of our former right. religions, as we were talking about with Nate, and that can be a grieving process too, losing our faith and trying to find a new one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I think it happens in communities that are active and yeah. are self aware. And you don't find that in all communities, and I think that could be an issue. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think you know that's what Lauren's even pointing to too, in a way of like people that are truly hurt. It's like people need to understand why people are hurt, yeah. and be active in uh, uh, knowing how to console, mm-hmm. to listen, typically right, and just yeah. be there. And so I think for UUism to be a source of you know consolation you we have to be active self-aware and present right and and i think for our community that's something we have to ask like i know when uh in 2016 uh when you know trump won the election we had a place for people to go immediately Mm. where they could just be frustrated and mourn Mm. for the country Mm. and we had people uh, uh uh kind of just break off in groups and just listen to each other and like hold each other. Yeah. And I think that that needs to be more regular in some ways. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. that's, that's, that's truly uh, um, uh, uh, beautiful. And also that that's what consolation is. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. And when we don't have this, the source of all true consolation and the infinite love of God, which is what you know, I was told we need to find it in community. And for that to happen, we need a community to be active, self-aware and present. And, yeah, I, that's what I, I think. appreciate that. And and I think it's interesting, too, especially when you look at, you know, systemic oppression and racism or like yeah. environmental degradation, these kind of, you know, we, we understand how to do it when somebody's died, you know, like instinctively, yeah. but also we're a very compassionate, empathic, loving church, right? So we'll swoop around somebody when they've died, but that's a lot, you know, kind of we're more accustomed to that and we have a little more skill in supporting that and it's hard to give a casserole to the climate change you know what i mean and so part of the consolation is that these same skills that we're kind of good at you know surrounding people when they're grieving we're kind of a little more we understand that process a little better 
but the same kind of grieving and the same kind of pastoral connection, in addition to all of the rabble rousing and organizing that we have to do, you know, is really called for in these larger, more complicated questions around, you know, systemic oppression and racism. It's like, how do we create the space for that same kind of consolation around questions around the environment and, you know, climate change and these huge, difficult challenges that we're facing? Um, we're going to be having our wonderful FCB Green team is going to be hosting and uh, helping us have a conversation around becoming carbon neutral by 2035. Mm -hmm. And part of that conversation is to be able to have space to really let in the climate crisis that we're in the midst of, to really be able to console one another while looking out with clear eyes at these challenges in front of us, yeah. you know, these huge ones. And we're really ready for it, I think, because of you know, all the stuff that we've been talking about because of the free and responsible search for truth and meaning because of all of our, you know, because of all of our openness anyway. So mm -hmm. I think, I think it's, it's a, it's a skill and it's a challenge and it's a, and it's a really good one. Look at that. Yeah. Good question. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> Touche. Um, well, I, I was going to say too, just from what Lauren was, uh, the question Lauren was asking, um, or just, uh, what you kind of brought uh, this mailbag question. Um, I think when, when we look at uh, people of color and we look at suppression and too often we want people of color to be uh, our teachers and educators. Mm -hmm. And when we mm -hmm. invite them into our community, it's, it's uh, teach us, tell us, you know, uh, and we want to be confirmed from like the actions we're doing. And I think that can be toxic. Yeah. Uh, in the way of, if we want to be, um, if we want to be a, a place of a consultation to the uh, uh, to people, the black community, uh, we we need to be a place where we listen, mm. and not expect to be taught. You know, listen yeah. to the uncomfortable truths and listen to things that we may not hear because it doesn't really confirm the action and things we've been doing too. And I think yeah. that's that's where it really starts. And like with when I was working with the Anti-Racism Institute, you know, in uh, Philadelphia, that's like the first step we would tell people is you have to hear the hard truths first, because that's mm. the only time when people actually feel seen right. uh, mm. and feel heard. And then from there, that's where healing comes. That's where people can find comfort. And sometimes it takes us not expecting to... Um, to uh, have these engagements be a time of us learning <laughs> you know, and right. just more of us listening and mm -hmm. uh, hearing these these things. That's um, good. So good to have you, man. And yeah, I am, yeah, of course, deeply, deeply grateful again for everything that you bring to the team, but especially just the heroic service in this last year and a half. You really oh, went you. just above <laughs> and beyond over and over and over. And I think only Ian <laughs> probably, and I know the extent to which you did. <laughs> so many yeah. technical yeah. challenges, so many just absurdly long days, but I am deeply, deeply, deeply grateful. And I know that as much as it is a challenge right now, family ministry is complicated in this moment, but I have so much faith in everything that we're building everything yeah. that you've already yeah. built and this next phase of all that we're going to get to do together. And I'm so grateful to have you on the team, man. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I really well, we, we appreciate you, Nate. Me. Oh, thank awesome. you, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks a lot. And um, yeah. 
be gone from the pod. (laughs) (laughs) What an outro. Okay. Awesome. That's great. Thanks, man. All right, Sam. Wasn't that good? That was awesome. I, we are getting so good at this. Let's just call it. Let's just call it. No, people yeah. are so fascinating. Like, I know. This was our idea going in and we were like, people just all have incredible stories to share. And it's right? so far been so true. It's been yeah. really, really, really fascinating. So thanks everybody for listening. And do send us in any questions you have for Sam or I to the mailbag. You can email them to either of us if you have our emails or minister at uubelmont.org. We're always excited to to hear from you. And if there's anybody who you'd love to have on the pod, let us know. Um, but we have another couple guests lined up and we'll we'll keep doing it. This has been really, really fun. So thanks for listening. And thank you, Sam. As always, this is a real joy to thank get to you, do Chris. This with you. This is great. All right. Have wonderful weeks, everybody. Bye, everyone. <laughs>